everybody, and welcome to the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast. We're coming rain, shine, or anything in between. We're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. I'm Ace Edwards, right alongside Connor Balthasar. And today, it's a great day to be a Wildcat because we have quite a bit of recruiting news. Realistically, it's just two commits, but one of, well, it's not one of, it is by far and away the largest commit of the show's lifetime and i don't think it's particularly close right not point. at all yeah, nobody's in the same stratosphere other than maybe dylan maybe Dylan. i don't think it's i maybe he's starting to touch that atmosphere but i yeah. i don't think it's close but then after the absolutely massive recruiting news that caused us to record two days early and release it subsequently two days early you're welcome uh I don't know why I'm saying you're welcome. It's not like it's it's like a reward, but (laughs) (laughs) it's like a reward. It's like a reward. And then we're going to be talking a little bit about realignment, just minor updates on what we've heard, which, you know, could be completely irrelevant by the time this episode comes out. Because that's kind of how things are moving. It's an ever changing landscape is what they like to say that in a volatile environment. Those are the buzzwords that normally get thrown out for stuff like that. So, yeah. It's like a gym rat for a receiver. Yeah. Yeah, kind of. High football IQ. Anyway, <laughs> let's firstly start off with K-State recruiting. And this is why we're recording the episode a couple of days early. And that is the commitment of four-star quarterback from Mays, Kansas, Avery Johnson, committing to your Kansas State Wildcats on CBS Sports HQ earlier on in the day that we are recording this. If you've been on K-State Twitter and message boards or or have the ESPN app and <laughs> have the K-State Wildcat football team tagged, you even got a push notification that Avery Johnson would be a Kansas State Wildcat. And we'll, we'll go more into what it means in a, just a tiny bit, but let's just start off with just what we think of him as a player, because you don't, you don't go, you don't become a four-star quarterback and finish in the elite 11 for no reason. And Avery Johnson is a legit, a legit quarterback prospect who honestly day one, him stepping on campus, he will already have NFL expectations because if you just take a look at what the fan, what the K-State fan base's reaction has been to Jake Rubley, I want you to imagine that multiplied by about two. And that's my expectation for Avery Johnson because of what he's able to do on the football field. Now, the first thing you'll hear about him is he's a three-sport athlete. How do I know this? Because that's the first thing they talked about on the CBS Sports HQ. <laughs> yeah, and then they talked about it a lot. Like they talked about it like three different times and said the exact same thing every time. Yeah, it was like, he's just he's just a really fiery competitor. But on the football field, Avery Johnson is one of the most gifted athletes that I've seen at quarterback, and most certainly one of probably the most gifted to come out of Kansas since a very long time. I think Graham Ertz was the last quarterback who is as highly rated, but he's nowhere near as athletic as Avery is. Yeah. Names that come to mind are guys like Bram Mertz, uh, Blake Bell, before we moved to uh, like tight end slash Wildcat QB thing at OU. Yeah. Um, Nick Patton, I remember, was a guy that was supposed to 
really take off and then just kind of faded into nothingness, kind of. He really never even played college ball. But Kansas is not really a state that's known for producing incredible quarterbacks. So Avery Johnson's a bit of an anomaly in that sense, I suppose. Yeah. Um, Graham Mertz as well. But yeah, it Avery's phenomenal uh, as a prospect in basically every measurable way. Yeah. Uh, especially for where he's from. But um, I don't know. What, what do you have to say about him, Ace? My personal opinion of Avery Johnson is I'm not going to go as far as to say that he's going to push for the starting job the moment that he gets on campus. I do think that he makes a remarkably convincing argument for QB3, barring any transfers out. But what makes Avery Johnson such a special quarterback is not just his athleticism and what he can do with the ball in his hands. It's what he can do making the ball leave his hands when he throws it. He has one of the most live arms that in, in this class. I'm just going to say it. Having looked at a couple of quarterbacks in this class, now granted, I'm not a national recruiting analyst, although that'd be an awesome job. Um, yeah, that'd be pretty cool. It'd be a sick job, but I'm not a national recruiting analyst. That being said, he has, I think he steps on campus day one, has the best arm on the roster. I'm including How about Jaron Lewis. I'm including everyone on the roster. And I think the only one that comes close is probably Lara. But even then, Lara has a few things that he needs to figure out. And yes, you could make an argument that Lewis has a strong arm. There's a difference between having a strong arm and an arm that is functional. <laughs> Lewis can throw the ball far. Yeah. Avery can throw the ball well and put it where it needs to be. Yeah. And he's really accurate, even when he has to abandon his mechanics outside of the pocket. So obviously he'll need time to adjust to the college game. And right now he is a little bit underweight. He's like 170 pounds or something like that. But that's yeah. what redshirting is for. My expectations for Avery Johnson is to, and I, I hate to put this on someone who committed at this point six hours ago from when we were recording this episode. Yeah. But truly, he has the potential and the tools to be an all-time great for K-State. Yeah. Weight is definitely a concern immediately if he can't put it on. I'm not worried about it yet because I, I truly think that that's not going to be an issue in the long term. I mean, Skyler, as I recall, was like 185 or 190 when he stepped on campus, and he ended at like 220 or 230. So I, I'm not too worried necessarily about Avery um the only concern is that maybe his frame is a little bit slight but I could I think he can get up to 200 pounds like yeah pretty easily especially in a uh in our weight room where uh coach true he's been putting on the way here pretty pretty well for the rest of the team recently yeah but yeah live arm is a good way to describe him um I like that we're talking about that it's something that we've discussed I think a little bit recently that most national analysts haven't really talked about much until recently, which is that a lot of times when you have a dual threat quarterback, um, people will assume that basically means that they're mobile, that they're good at running the ball and they're athletic, but they're not great at passing, which is kind of, it's, it's weird that that gets labeled as dual threat. It should probably be a separate classification of mobile option but, quarterback. Yeah. Option QB. Right. But Avery is truly a dual threat 
in every sense of the word and that he's an incredible athlete outside the pocket uh and he can make incredible things happen with his legs uh as well as a he's excellent at improvising but he also has a great arm period he makes great throws that most high school quarterbacks couldn't dream of making and his highlight tape is full of them even though there's great moments of improvisation there's also a lot of moments where he stands tall in the pocket and makes a really strong throw across the middle and tight coverage. So there's a lot to be optimistic on with Avery. Of course, it all has to come together. But as things stand right now, I, there's not a lot for us to sit here and critique, I think, other than maybe consistency. But yeah, I mean, which that, that was his one issue i guess at a elite 11 which he was named uh part of the elite 11 that he was a little bit inconsistent from drill to drill but i considering that colin klein who was the epitome of consistency as a qb is gonna be the oc now i'm hoping that they should be able to figure it out and of course colin klein was a huge part of his recruitment big reason why he came here but i'm I don't know. There, there's not enough that can be said about Avery as a prospect, I think, to illustrate the quality of player that we're getting and also the importance of his recruitment in a larger sense. Yeah. And that's actually, you mentioned the dual threat thing earlier. That's something that Avery himself mentions during his press conference. Like, yeah, I'm a dual threat quarterback, but I really only run when I have to. Which... You know, depending, I, I think most people would say that's a good thing, which it just depends on offensive philosophy. I think Colin Klein would think that is a good thing. Yeah, I, I think that would be a good thing because that seems to be in line with what Adrian Martinez has said um, as well this offseason, where there will be some designed running, but it's going to be a big step back from where at Nebraska he was really expected to run a lot and do a lot of improvising because there was there was really no offensive structure there for him. Yeah. Um, uh, and that, that would kind of track with what Avery wants to do, I suppose. And then also, it's probably good for him in, at the high school level because he already knows that he's an elite runner and he's elite running the ball and getting out of the pocket. So maybe he sees it as a helpful challenge to stay in the pocket more and develop even more as a passer. Yeah. So that's the scouting report on Avery Johnson, but this has wide ranging implications for K-State as a program. So Connor, you, you get to answer this question first. What does this recruiting victory mean for Clemens Wildcats? Well, a big thing is perception, I'd say. Um, Avery Johnson had, I believe, 23 other Power 5 offers I won't list all of them, but Notre Dame offered, Ole Miss offered, Oregon offered, Washington offered, Arkansas, Iowa State, Nebraska, Missouri. Lots of names on there that in years past, K-State's not been able to uh, surpass an offer like that. And then this year, uh, we've seen it happen multiple times already. And then Avery getting such a high-profile prospect like Avery Johnson that that's a big statement for the staff. I think Dylan was the first hint that things were changing. And this is really solidifying that things are different for the staff now and that they've really found a way to level the playing field. Colin Klein, I think is a big part of that, but 
uh, it, it, it's huge um, for the program's perception and then also for landing other prospects. Uh, people are going to see that. There's not a lot of positions where uh, a player commits and then people start to flock towards that player. But quarterback's going to be one of them because they run the show. And you, I, I'd say that we could probably expect to see at the very least, increased interest. I mean, guys like Josh Manning and Jacoby Lane that uh, most K-State fans are aware of by this point, those are recruitments that probably aren't possible if you're recruiting a lower-level quarterback that we may have gotten in the past, um, as opposed to a guy like Avery Johnson, who has a lot of prestige, is really well-known, he's an Elite 11 member, he's proven his uh, prowess as a passer and a runner, Um, but then all of a sudden you get these guys interested guys like Josh Manning, Jacoby Lane, um, hopefully more in the future. And then you get a commitment from Andre Davis where, again, that's a recruitment that even though he's a Kansas guy, probably lose in years past. But the staff has changed things a little bit. So uh, Avery means a lot for the perception of the program and then for recruiting at other positions and getting even more talented people here because he did stay at his press conference. He wants to uh, help the program recruit more players. Would you love to hear that from Avery and Dylan, uh, that they're going to work hard and uh, try and get other guys from the high school ranks to join them at Kansas State. You love to hear stuff like that. Dylan's already been doing it, so we've seen the execution on his end. I'm interested to see what the uh, style of recruiting will be from Avery, if it'll be as outward as Dylan's has been. Lead recruiter on Joe Odding, Dylan Edwards. He's tweeting at him like once a day at this point. <laughs> Which, you know what? I hope he can change his mind. I'm not holding my breath. I'm not holding my breath. But do, do you have anything anything more to add there? Um, For the program specifically, not me. Uh, do you have anything you want to say? Yes, I do. Okay. For me, this is evidence that we've officially turned a corner with Kleiman. And... When I say that, I don't mean that we hadn't recruited anyone before, because obviously we picked up Jake Rubley. And I've seen more and more people kind of questioning that recruitment. I don't particularly care. That's winning a four-star recruitment battle. But outside of Rubley, there have been commitments that, or battles that we've been a part of that we just weren't necessarily winning. You know, our top flight guys that we really wanted, like our choice one guys were ending up going somewhere else. And this is one of the first times in the climate, not one of the first, but this is perhaps the biggest example of Kleiman and his staff getting their 1A choice at a position and closing that battle effectively. And to me, that is evidence that they're turning a corner because not only do they do it with Avery, they did it with Dylan. They did it with Will Anciao. They're working on doing it with Josh Manning. They got Andre Davis with, when you're taking receivers, your one a is like three different people. And they've done it with Camden BB, who is they've done it with every single one of the targets that they've gone for thus far. It's never felt like they're settling on a target. And a part of the reason why is what Avery said. Avery, Avery said in his press conference, Chris Kleiman is a proven winner and I want to play with winners. And the fact that that message is finally resonating and it's finally getting home and we're finally getting those 1A options, to me, it's turning a corner 
in K-State football recruiting to where we're not having to quote unquote settle for now granted sometimes when we ended up quote unquote settling for players ended up being better anyway and that's a credit to the evaluation ability but i want you to imagine a world where k-state football keeps its evaluating ability that it has but also gets its 1a targets that it evaluated that way i think that that is a perennial big 12 championship contender I think you're probably right. That's at minimum a perennial top 25% of the Big 12, however many teams that ends up being. Um, so four, three-ish. Um, but you, at the very least, see a pretty big increase in the uh, recruiting rankings as well. Right now, uh, they're, I believe, 42nd on Rivals, 43rd on 24-7. They're actually 33rd on on three. Uh, which is really interesting because there's still several guys that haven't been rated yet, but uh, they they value Dylan Edwards a lot there as well as Joe Jackson on on three. But um, yeah, the perception is huge. And then, yeah, the proof that they are turning that corner is massive, I think. And if that can be sustained, granted, we're going to have to see them do it without one of the all-time best uh, in-state classes, but we're still getting guys like Donovan McIntosh who is, I think, an excellent prospect out of St. Louis. And then Joe Jackson, who's from Florida. And he's also a very highly regarded prospect. So we'll see where it goes in the future. But, I mean, it's encouraging, if nothing else. Yeah. So uh, also, this is, I, I hate to grave dance, but this is a take that I've been waiting to grave dance on for several years. Uh, rest in peace to the take where you can't recruit to Manhattan, Kansas. Yep. It was a stupid take to begin with. <laughs> now, that has long been a myth, I think, that granted has been perpetuated by the uh, sports media. Um, and a lot of that was because it helped to uh, increase like the uh, the beauty of like the Bill Snyder story, where he took uh, lesser recruits and turned them into winning football teams. But they mistook that as Snyder finding perfect scheme fits and guys that he really liked as to him being unable to recruit to Manhattan and as it being like Manhattan as a place as opposed to like the program and the style of program, I think. Which Kleiman's now showing that it's not the place necessarily that wasn't being able to be recruited to. It was more so the program that was struggling. And he has revived it. And when he gets guys on campus... Like what he that's what they've been saying the whole time Kleiman's been here is when they get guys on campus, things go better. Oh, and yeah. that's kind of seeming to pay dividends right now. Uh that stance that Kleiman has had because they got Avery on campus uh tons of times, it seems like, uh beyond just the official visit. But I don't know. Yeah, I that was a myth that persisted for a long time. I think it was just laziness on the part of K-State fans that wanted to explain away why recruiting wasn't going well. And I understand defaulting to that answer, but I am happy to see it be proved wrong or at the very least uh, uh, being worked against at the moment. Yeah. I mean, this, this is something that I actually got the chance to ask Taylor Brad about on a Bosco's boys live show. Shout out Bosco's boys and also shout out Taylor Brad, who 
Both are doing excellent. Another work. another Aggieville Alley Cats hat tip to Taylor Bratt and yeah. everyone that worked to get Avery Johnson here. Yeah, but Taylor Bratt, the first thing I asked him a question. It was something to the effect of, because this was uh, it was like a year ago at this point. I said, what, what's been the hardest part about recruiting during the pandemic? And he said, making sure people got on campus. Because once they get on campus, everything goes much better. It's, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't, just from personal experience, I didn't grow up a K-State fan. I grew up an MU fan. And I, I always mention this because it's, it's important to me. I showed up to K-State. I wasn't expecting to like Manhattan. Honestly, I wasn't. I didn't expect to like it at all. And the main reason I was touring here was because I wanted to explore all of the local options. Then I toured Manhattan exactly once. And now I don't want to leave. Now I am genuinely dreading graduating because I will have to leave Manhattan to go somewhere else. <laughs> it's because you've seen me be sad about having to leave. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is a very big part. But Manhattan, when you get there, and I, it's the same thing for recruits. It's a different town hearing about it than from being there. And exactly. That's all I can really say. So, and this is probably the most important question we have to ask for this episode. I have my answer. And again, this could just be me being the equivalency of a newborn in my K-State fandom. Is this the biggest recruiting W in K-State history? Yes. I can go. You think it is? I think it absolutely is. I have two answers. One of them is no by one person. And the other one is yes when looked at through a different lens. The no is Josh Freeman because that was a Nebraska flip. And that's the only reason I consider that a bigger win that we also like did not have a functional QB on that roster at that point. And the, however, when you go from biggest to most important and change the terminology, I would say yes. I, I think that Avery is the most important recruiting victory. I know that's not the question, but no, 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 no. That, that, that's what I meant for when I said biggest yeah. is most okay, important. Yeah. yeah. Biggest, I think, is still Josh Freeman both literally and figuratively that man was absolutely gigantic but uh no yeah most important i do think it's avery johnson that's what you meant then i agree with that i think avery was the most is the most important recruit in k-state history uh at least up until this point because of the potential to bring other recruits with him to elevate the perception of the program and as well as the talent level and winning potential of the program. Avery does a lot for this. And that also he's setting an example for future in-state kids uh, to stay home because it's been a uphill battle for Chris Kleiman, Taylor Bratt and company to get the top in-state guys to stay home and compete at K-State because they weren't even going to KU. They were just leaving Kansas entirely. And this is the first time in like 20 years that a number one prospect in the state had stayed home to go to K-State. So I'd say, yeah, it's the most important recruiting victory in K-State history, no doubt. Yeah, I, I 100% agree because, like you said, it's the perception. Top, like objective top 10 quarterback in this class by almost every yeah. measurement that you can see. I, I think, yeah, I think the recruiting rankings are about to catch up to that belief. 
I think that reevaluation is going to see his ranking jump uh, into the top 10. Cause right now, basically everywhere, he's just barely outside of the top 10. He's like 12th or actually, I think he might be 12th everywhere. And I think about it, but um, well, he's third on rivals, but it's as a dual threat because they separate dual threat and pro. And pro. Well, but yeah, they're so special. Yeah, I think he's 12 on 24 seven as well. But yeah, that I, I think his ranking goes up uh, here pretty soon. Not yeah. to interrupt you. No, you're good. You're fine. That's that's part of the show is we're two friends. We can interrupt each other and not want to kill each other later. <laughs> you say that. <laughs> <laughs> but other than him being a top 10 quarterback in this class, he's the best player in the state of Kansas, which Connor went over why that's important. He's our 1A target. He is probably the no no he is the most talented high school recruit that we have won a recruiting battle for at least in my memory in these past like ten years again Freeman could you could make an argument for that but and then it's just the proof that Kleiman's message is resonating and that the message about K-State is resonating. And it's a message that we come here to win. That is a message that amplifies itself, but it can also deaden itself very quickly. So the fact that that it is getting to recruits like Dylan Edwards, like Avery Johnson, it's proof that that message can can keep reaffirming itself until eventually we get even better and better results. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to become Alabama because no one is Nick Saban. <laughs> right. But the, the idea of recruiting and winning being contagious is both very true. And whenever you marry the two together, it is even better. And that's why it is the most important recruiting victory in K-State history to me. All great points. So all of this leads to one final question. Who's next for the K-State Wildcats to grab? And we brought up two earlier. Uh, Jacoby Lane, who is the Elite 11 wide receiver MVP, who is one of the, like, strange, one of the most strangely emo people on Twitter. <laughs> we covered so this weird. already. But... Yeah, he was he was our wacky segment before we realized how serious his recruitment is. Like, oh, oh, oh. Well, yeah, he was the person who was catching passes from Avery Johnson while he was at the Elite 11 camp. Yeah. Or could it be Joshua Manning who pushed his commitment date back? And uh, MU is probably going to find some way to get another bull ban out of it. <laughs> NCAA recruiting violations inbound, boys. <laughs> I'm not alleging anything. I am saying that that anytime MU does anything or anything remotely suspicious happens around them, they get hit with a bowl ban. <laughs> it's just a coincidence, really. It's it really must be. <laughs> um I I'm not a hundred percent sure who to pick as the next commit because these we kind of just got through a big crop of guys that we expected. 
Yeah. And I, we the wild west. Yeah. Now all of a sudden, yeah, there's no scheduled commits coming up anytime soon. Most of the uh, recent visitors have committed at this point, the exceptions being uh, Jacoby Lane, Josh Manning, uh, Hank Zelenka from Colorado uh, and Eric Singleton from Georgia. But I, at this point, it really is kind of dealer's choice on uh, who you think it'll be. If we're thinking about a highly rated guy, I'd say Josh Manning maybe. But if we're going elsewhere, I'd consider somebody like Hank Salinkas or uh, maybe Austin Romaine. Uh, he's a linebacker uh, from Hillsborough, Missouri. And right now, K-State has a uh, um, crystal ball prediction uh, for him on 24-7. So I'm spitballing here, um, looking at who might could potentially end up a cat. But at this point, it may be a few more weeks before we see a commit, which Honor may is, not survive. I might not make it. I've really gotten used <laughs> to the uh, pretty steady influx of commits that we've been seeing. And it's going to be unfortunate, but we are in a recruiting dead period right now. So there's just going to be less happening in general. But we may see a few more uh, as we get closer to the season and then maybe scattered throughout the season. But I, I'm not sure. It's going to be pretty hard to predict from here. Maybe it'll be John Randall. Who knows? But I take it. <laughs> I would I would personally accept his commitment. I, I think that's a really wise choice on your part, Ace. Which, speaking of John Randall, he plays running back and the other commitment. And I, I feel really bad marking him as the other commitment. But in this case, for this episode, I'm really sorry. But... <laughs> The other commitment for this week for your Kansas State Wildcats is also on the offensive side of the ball, and that is three-star, five foot eleven, one hundred eighty-five pound running back, running back from Florida, specifically Davenport, Florida. He ended up committing to K State on July fourth, so yesterday. And the first thing that I noticed with Joe Jackson is position versatility. He is marked as a running back or I no, he's marked as an athlete. I think anywhere you look at and uh, yeah, he plays just about everywhere on offense, except quarterback and lineman. Okay. He's a receiver and running back. He has remarkable receiver skills and he's a pretty solid running back in and of himself. And I'm not going to go into the take that I had earlier when I was discussing this with Connor earlier. Uh, Cause I've, no, I still believe it, but it's still a little takey. But my assessment of Joe Jackson is that he has he has good speed, but the elite trait that he has is his ability to bend and control his body, just that, that body control that he has to make several different cuts on rougher <laughs> on on dirt or turf, make them back to back and still not lose momentum. There's a reason why there, there were schools that were recruiting him to play wide receiver because he has that insane ability. And also on his film, what, he's one of the first receiver prospects that I've ever seen that understands how zone coverages work and that the moment he crosses into a zone, he should slow down to wait for the ball there instead of just running directly behind another defender. <laughs> 
I mean, that's a great quality for Joe Jackson to have. Really is. Um, I will say he is listed as a all-purpose back yeah. on Rivals, but the uh, big sites 24-7 on three, uh, they both list him as an athlete. Uh, so take that for what you will. It doesn't really change anything where we, I mean, we both still really like him as a prospect. Yeah. But I do tend to see him more as a running back that is really good at receiving, um, which is something that I think of the staff has really gravitated towards. Um, I think when they're looking at for their high school prospects at running back, uh, they really like versatile players. Uh, although Joe Jackson's a little bigger than most of those guys that normally go after Deuce, obviously great receiving, but very small bill in the same way, but Joe, uh, five level one eighty five. He's listed at six foot on rivals, which I thought he looked six foot on film. Uh, he's like one of the only players I've ever seen get listed at a lower height than they actually are. I mean, it <laughs> happens occasionally if someone just hits a growth spurt and they like don't update it. Yeah, but I really like Joe Jackson. I he, I see him as a one cut back where he he's just excellent at getting close to the line and then exactly what it sounds like one cut. And he's getting upfield, and he has great elusiveness in space as well, and great bend, like Ace was saying. Uh, that is something that deserves to be mentioned. But he also, like Ace was saying, has excellent receiver instincts. Um, there's a lot to like about Joe Jackson as a versatile weapon going forward. Somebody that I think could be paired really well with Dylan Edwards, and I'm sure people are a little worried about two running backs in the same class, but I really think that they could be used at the same time. And I don't think there's too much argument about that either. Uh, yeah, Ace is agreeing right now. Yeah, and uh, I, I like uh, the idea of a Joe of Joe Jackson and Dylan uh, split shotgun and then one motion to the slot or both motion to the slot. We've talked about this a little bit, but turn empty. Yeah, that is turn empty. Why not? And sure. Uh, but yeah, he's also he's a highly regarded prospect as well. He held some Power Five offers. He visited Duke and Rutgers. Um. Uh, 0.8759 on the 24-7 composite. Um, actually a little higher on on three, which is kind of rare. On three is generally a bit more conservative with their rankings. They put guys a little bit lower. Um, but he's an 88 uh consensus rating on on three, then a 5.73 star on rivals. So he's pretty much at this point a consensus very high three star, almost four star. And he's somebody that, like, again, I don't want to get too optimistic, but you could see his ranking jump a little bit. I don't know if he's quite a four-star, but there's a little bit of wiggle room left in between where he is right now and being a full-fledged four-star. So I I think he embodies uh, the high three-star prospect in my mind. Uh, Dylan should get the bump uh, to a full-fledged four-star because he's kind of hit and miss on different uh, services on if he is or isn't, but... Yeah, it does. It is unfortunate for Joe Jackson that he uh, committed one day before Avery because he does get listed as the other commit in this video, despite being a very high quality commit. But, you know, um, uh, it's tough luck for Joe. It literally could have happened to anybody. It could have. He did get his day. He did get his day in the sun uh, and he got his recognition. Uh, So hopefully people do not forget about him because I really like Joe Jackson as a prospect. But, that also goes to show the quality of the class that's being made where we uh, are almost forgetting about Joe Jackson because we just got Avery Johnson and we have Dylan Edwards and Andre Davis. And we're competing and jo- for yeah. other 
Yeah. Others. Yeah. Most years, Joe Jackson would be the number one guy in a K-State class. But right now he's third and he may end up lower. It's food for thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have anything else to say? We're, we're going to skip that last little one because we kind of covered it earlier. But you have anything else to say on Joe Jackson? I do not. All right. So once again, that is by far one of the, it's the biggest week in K-State recruiting that we've ever covered. And, you know, if I almost wish that, no, I don't. I was about to say, like, I really hope that we get another weekend like that soon. I'm like, no, I don't. My heart couldn't take it. (laughs) I might explode. It was very, it felt really good to have Avery finally commit because now we've, I mean, I think we can go all the way back to the genesis of the show and saying that a successful 23 class has both remember, Avery and Dylan. Yeah, yeah it, it may have been like at one of the two or something like that. And we end up with both, which I, I don't know how realistic we thought that was a year ago. I don't remember exactly, but I don't think we thought it was particularly realistic to get. I didn't both think of those Avery guys. was possible. I didn't think Avery was possible. I, I really didn't. Um. Uh, we we were always on the Dylan train, but Avery was someone we hoped we'd get, but had no expectation on. So it's it's interesting to see that this almost kind of closes an era of the show, one could say, where the Avery and Dylan commitments are finally done, or recruitments are finally done, and cats end up on top in a rare recruiting dub, but hopefully soon to be common recruiting dub. Yeah. So. Yeah. That pretty much wraps up, or no, it doesn't pretty much. It wraps up K-State recruiting that we're going to be talking about for this week. Now we're going to be talking about our second favorite subject that we just can't escape from in summer, and that's realignment. And once again, I would like to remind everybody, this this one is still not our fault. (laughs) It is still not our fault. We didn't do it. We didn't didn't do this one. But for what we're hearing, we'll start we'll start off with, with what we're hearing and I'll, I'll just take the first one and then you take the next two that. All right. Like the first bullet point there. How about me? All right. So the rumor is, and let, let, let's preface this by saying that there are very few people that genuinely know what is going on with realignment. We are not one of those people. I don't think that you can find more than two people that are outside of an athletic director or conference director office that know even 2% of what is going on. So with that being said, the most recent rumors that has been circulating is that the first domino that needs to fall for the big 10 to determine if they expand anything further after USC or UCLA is going to be Notre Dame. And I think that you and I sort of predicted that because we were we were like, yeah, Notre Dame's Big Ten and everything but name anyway, so why wouldn't they join? But hearing that they need to be the first domino to fall either way to determine what happens next to me is really interesting. Yeah, it, it is really interesting uh, how uh, it seems like the Big Ten's kind of standing pat right now. Um, but it's a little surprising. I figured it'd move a little faster, but when you sit back and think about it, it does make sense for the big 10 to not want to expand 
too much yeah. just because they are about to get probably the biggest media deal in college football history uh, pretty soon here. So they're sitting here thinking, do we really want to dilute that revenue pool much more? And especially because uh, there seems to be questions on how much other schools would offer uh, and like to add to that pool. And Notre Dame obviously does in a big way. Yeah. Because Notre Dame has been able to thrive as an independent, which is a very, very difficult thing to do. Uh, granted, Notre Dame has a built-in fan base of about one billion worldwide, but <laughs> BYU is more impressive in that regard. But that's neither here nor there. No, yeah, it actually is. Yeah, BYU <laughs> is just small Notre Dame, but <laughs> diet Notre Dame. Yeah, pretty much. Like no insults to BYU, like that's just kind of what they are. And yeah, Notre Dame is interesting to follow because they're ACC member and everything. But I feel like everybody kind of thinks of them as like a Big Ten type of school. Just based off of how they, yeah, yeah, and just how they carry themselves and everything. Uh, the just a general feeling of Notre Dame has always been Big Ten to me. So I I normally hate realignment and everything, but Notre Dame going from independence to the Big Ten, yeah, it makes the Big Ten more powerful, which is unfortunate. I I would much prefer that the Big Ten and SEC not consolidate power, but at least it geographically also makes sense, and historically makes sense to me as well. So. It, it at least doesn't anger me in that sense, like USC and UCLA does, where there's just no sense to it other than adding money. money. Uh, yep. But it's, uh, I don't know. It, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how it goes because there's been reports that the Big Ten is just going to wait on Notre Dame for as long as it takes and do nothing else uh, in that window, which is going to be bad news for Oregon and Washington because they, we had been assuming when realignment started that Oregon and Washington would be the next to join the big 10. Cause that was kind of the, the prevailing reporting, Yeah. but we started to consider on the show, you know, maybe that's not unlocked. That's not written in stone necessarily. Um, because I, I think the big 10 realized that Oregon and Washington while they're both really good teams and they have big alumni bases, they don't really add a lot of TV sets in the way that people think that they do, and which is really surprising to me. But it is actually true. It's a weird. Um, it's weird because it's like, okay, I guess Eugene doesn't have like massive population, but Seattle. <laughs> no, I I think it's just that area of the country is just not a huge college football area, which tracks really. It does. Because there's a lot of NFL teams on the coast and uh, not a lot else uh, out in that region. Um, and Oregon and Washington, again, it's probably another, it's Pac-12 really running itself into the ground again, where they weren't doing themselves any favors to increase their national relevance, which in turn helps you get casual local fans. And they, they really weren't managing their uh, time slots or media deals particularly well. Uh, so you can credit Larry Scott really for basically every problem the Pac-12 faces. I feel very bad for George Klyakov because he's probably going to get blamed for a lot of the issues, but he was not commissioner when most of these things became problems. So he lose his conference. <laughs> yeah, he's going to probably lose his conference, and there's just not anything he can really do about it, I don't think. The only hope is Oregon and Washington remaining, but even then, that probably is a temporary solution because yeah. – there's probably not a reality where 
they stay for long. And if the Big Ten offers, they're leaving, period. And with the media deal about to come up, they're already negotiating their new deal. They're going to lose a lot of valuation because USC and UCLA, they covered the LA market. They accounted for a lot of the value of their media deal. And that's going to be gone, uh, which is unfortunate uh, for some of the schools in the conference. But I think they're going to find that it's going to be a struggle for money and that the dollar signs, they're going to jump off the page in a bad way for the remaining schools. And that might be enough to drive them out, uh, drive out the remaining schools, Stanford and Cal to like go independent, Oregon State, Washington State. I truly am so sorry. I am so sorry. You did everything you could, truly. You couldn't have done anything else, but you are probably going to Mountain West. I unironically feel very bad for those fan bases because they don't deserve to suffer for the mistakes of one man, Larry Scott, former Pac-12 commissioner who ran the conference into the proverbial ground. But yeah. and, I, and I have to be honest, part of me is rooting for the Pac-12 to keep on living exclusively because of Wazoo and Oregon State. Yeah. Because theoretically, there is a path where the Pac-12 can still live. But I guess we can add, add this point on right here just impromptu. I, I think there is a path where the Pac-12 still gets to live. It involves them retaining Oregon and Washington and then picking up just as many markets as they can. I know Boise state isn't a big market, but they're probably the best school that's available. They probably would have to, I think Colorado state's mountain West, aren't they? Uh, Yeah, they are. They probably have to pick up Colorado state just for the market. Yeah. And Colorado is another one of those states where, most people are Broncos fans and they're not really thinking about uh, the other schools because if, if Denver was some big college football town, then Colorado is going to the big 10 along with USC and UCLA. Yeah. Because Buffalo's uh, pretty much a suburb of Denver and if Denver really cared about college football, then Colorado would not be thinking about the big 12 as this next location, which is just a hilarious case of irony for Colorado. I don't hold the vitriol that a lot of people do against Colorado. I do think it's funny though. <laughs> I think it's very funny. I think it's hilarious how much people hate Colorado. I was just too young to fully grasp the backstab of Colorado. Uh because I was like 10, I think, when they left, 10 or 11. So I like knew that they left, but I didn't really get anything about it. I didn't understand the politics or anything. But they uh they left for the Pac-12, pre- presumably to get away from Texas, as all of the other teams did that left. And you, can you know it. what? Fair, honestly, like sucks that you left and started the downward spiral. Uh, but I also do not blame the school for wanting to escape from Texas. But yeah. where did their failure lead them? Back to us. Back to us. But yeah, you got the next point as well. Yeah. Um, the uh, guess for the uh, first four uh, to find their way into the Big 12 right now, it's pretty unanimous, I'd say, right now in yeah. uh, college football circles. And anybody that at least seems to know what they're talking about, which again, it really 90% of realignment is trying to figure out who's talking and who actually knows what they're talking about. Because yeah. a lot of people like to throw things out 
that actually just don't know anything. And, but it seems like most people, regardless of reliability or not, are revolving around the group of the four corner schools that they're being referred to as uh, Colorado, uh, the Arizonas. So Arizona's and Arizona State, and then Utah. Those are the, the four names that keep getting thrown around as potential Big 12 expansion teams. I've seen some people say that it's bad that the Big 12 uh, expanded last summer because of this, because they could have gotten power fives right now. But I would argue it was better because yeah. if you think about it strategically, those four schools would have been probably pretty big expansion candidates for the Pac-12 trying to go national. And granted, BYU maybe is a little bit of a different story, but in a survival mode Pac-12 is probably to go out and find four similar schools. Um, but K-State, or I think it, but the Big 12 went out and got the four best available schools to add. And by extension, took that away from the Pac-12 having an avenue to easy expansion and stability. And now the Big 12 sees themselves in a position to potentially have 16 teams, all pretty much quality schools, um, and in the process, effectively demolishing the Pac-12. Although if Oregon and Washington don't find their way into the Big 10 and the Pac-12 ends up dissolving, who's to say that Oregon and Washington don't have a cup of coffee? And the Big 12, which even if they only stick around for like three or four years and bolt for the Big 10, you still have to take them. You yeah. have to take them from a competitive standpoint. And while they're not going to bring a ton of revenue to the Big 10, it would be a lot of revenue for the Big 12 in the future yeah. and would help cement their status as number three conference ahead of the ACC, which granted, I think they already are for the most part, or at the very least, they're, jock- they're jockeying for it right now. I don't but think I they're going to get much pushback on that. Yeah. And again, it'll help expand the Big 12 as being the obvious best basketball conference, which again, we know that doesn't matter that much in realignment, but it is really fun. Adding Arizona as a basketball school would be super fun. That was a one seed last year. I think the number one overall seed at that possibly. I I think that they were, but uh, then uh, Arizona State's been good in the past. Uh, Utah and Colorado, uh, we won't talk about that, but they... It, I don't know. This could be a really fun conference if those uh, big four that are circulating end up being in the ads. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I, I'm still very much in wait and see mode. I, I'm not at the point where I was with the Big Twelve last year to where at this exact same time last year, whenever realignment news broke about the Big 12, I felt that there was no way that the Big 12 was ever going to dissolve. I didn't think it was possible. There was too much money on the line for too many people. For the Pac-12, I still think it's more likely that they stay alive for at least the foreseeable future. But it's not as definitive as it was last year. I could see a world where the PAC 12 ceases to exist after two years, which is sad, but also. Oh, whenever I feel bad about most of the PAC 12 schools, I try to remind myself about the grave dancing from last year about the big 12. Yeah. Lots of coastal media and coastal schools were having a lot of fun. Uh, tearing down 
the uh, Heartland Conference of the Big 12 uh, making fun of their lessers in the Midwest and the Great Plains. And now we're seeing the same thing happen to the Pac-12, arguably worse, I would say, because there's fewer expansion candidates that actually stabilize their conference. And there's more teams that have a verifiable interest in leaving. And even if Oregon and Washington stay, they're unwilling participants, I'd say, in the Pac-12. It's simply by convenience. And even then, that might not be enough because those four corner schools are probably going to see the cost or the uh, the media deal for a new Pac-12. Even if they add like Boise State and San Diego State, they're going to see that. And they, they'll, they'd probably make more money in the Big 12. Um, and they probably bring at the very least, and they wouldn't bring down the revenue stream for the other schools, but it's going to be really weird. It's going to be a really weird few weeks. We might see something by the end of the week. It might be a month. It might be a year. Who knows? It might be the end of the college football season. We don't know. Yeah. It, it could happen whenever. Um, but I, at this point, I'm ready to say sooner rather than later. Because if there's one thing we learned from realignment last year, it's that they happen in spurts. Yeah. And uh, when when the ball gets rolling, it's pretty tough to stop. And then it kind of takes a year off, and then like a new round begins. But I don't think this round is done yet. So I think that there's going to be some drastic changes by the end of the month, at least. Yeah. And uh, if it's really, really big, like I. I don't know. Would we do an emergency episode for the four corner schools or would we wait for a normal episode? Um, depends. If it's early in the week, then maybe. But if it's like Wednesday, or something. if it's like Wednesday night, I'd say no. Yeah. All right. So what do you, what is, I guess we just kind of gave our prediction, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that at least mine, I, I don't think the PAC 12 survives. Um, I think that there is a path to survival for the, uh, for the PAC 12, but it involves every member school being okay with significantly less money and adding two schools that they've passed over for decades. And it involves four willing negotiate four schools that have been willing to speak with a different conference where they would be offered more money to turn down more money to be in a conference where the top two schools don't want to be there anyways. And a lot of things have to go right for the PAC 12 to continue to exist. And I don't know if anything that George Klyakov attempts will matter at the end of the day. I, all I know is at the end of the day, all this instability for the PAC 12 is a good thing for the big 12 and which is unfortunate. But I, again, I try to remind myself who was dancing on the graves of the Pac-12 or of the Big 12 last year. And it's people on the coast, big media members, people that wanted to prop up uh, the Pac-12 as being stronger than it was. When in reality, it was honestly probably always the weaker conference. But we only started to realize that once the Big 12 added uh, the new schools and stabilized and showed that it can be a strong conference still into the future. Yeah. Also, we also forgot to mention that the 
four corner schools actually fielded a meeting from the Big 12. It was apparently purely informational. Oh, yeah, we did forget. How did we forget to mention that when we we're talking about them? But yeah, I don't know. yeah, the uh, four corner schools, they did meet with the Big 12 uh, today, which is Tuesday, July 5th. Um, maybe more information is available about that tomorrow, but we shall see. Um, maybe it will bear fruit. But there's there's been a lot of public statements being made by Pac-12 schools and the Pac-12 and everything about how they're united and they're looking for the big new future and everything. And it comes off to me as uh, as a conference that knows what's about to happen and they're putting it off. Yeah. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But they they are not statements with substance until I see a media deal signed without easy outs. But I don't think they're going to get to that point in the Pac-12. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that that's pretty much all we have for realignment, which means that we can finally go to the wacky segment of the week. And this wacky segment is if you could pick two teams in college football history to face off against one another, who are you picking? Now, I know I gave you my answer earlier, but I'm going to change my answer. Okay. What year was it that uh, – what year was K-State's worst year? It was, it was 85? 88. 88. All right. So I have my answer. I'm going. Any... Wait, I'll let you say it. I'll let you say it. <laughs> it is 1988 Kansas State against 2020 Kansas. Because I am a masochist and I want to prove how bad KU is right now. I think KU wins 3-0. <laughs> That's actually extremely possible. I, I'm just thinking about how bad K-State was back then. I mean, I wasn't alive, but I mean, <laughs> it, that that team lost 27 games in a row, which is something K- even KU has never done. And KU has always suffered from bad coaching, but they've at least had pretty good athletes. I mean, what little highlights you see of K-State from back then, they just they didn't have anything. They barely had enough players to put a team together. But KU is so, so, so bad in 2020 that there's still a semblance of hope. There's a semblance of hope for that 88 team. They lose, but they at least only lose by three. My my original answer, by the way, was 2020 Kansas against 2021 UConn. And I feel like I'm not sure if that game would be any better. Um, three zero Yukon. Three zero Yukon. Wait, no, I take it back. Three to two Yukon. Three to two. <laughs> it's an intentional safety as well. Yeah. To run out the clock. <laughs> uh, the final on the final play of the game. Yukon's punting for the eleventh time of the game. They only pass the four. They only pass the fifty yard line one time, and it's on a dropped interception that's caught accidentally <laughs> by a receiver, and he accidentally steps out of bounds at the one and they kick a field goal on first down because they're afraid that they won't make in the end zone. 
<laughs> All right. What's your answer? Um, 2012 K-State versus 2012 Notre Dame to prove that if we hadn't lost to Baylor, we were going to win the Natty. You know what? That's a very good answer. Because I think we would have. 100%. If, if I had to give an answer that didn't involve pain, I'd probably go 19 LSU versus 21 Georgia. And I think LSU yeah. still wins comfortably, but I want people to shut up about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we did talk about that one a little bit before, and I agree with you. I think that 19 LSU team was just insane. And I think that they definitely – I think they clear Georgia. Georgia hangs around, but I think LSU, like you said, they comfortably win. Nothing like that playoff game against OU. But no. they I, – I would, I would definitely agree that LSU – I think the number I gave earlier was like LSU wins by like 14 to 17 points against yeah. Georgia. And it's like – a constant at arm's length game the entire time. Never really close, but you know, it's not a blowout either. Yeah, that pretty much wraps up this episode of the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. If you want to contact the show, please be sure to follow us on Twitter at Aggieville ACATS. That's capital A, capital A, and capital C in CATS. If you want to email us, we're AggievilleAllyCats at gmail.com. If you want to follow us on Twitter on a personal note, I am at ACEdwards00. I am at Connor Balthazor, capital C, capital B. And if you want to support the show financially, you could either sponsor the show through the link in the Spotify description or visit the official Aggieville Alley Cats merch store where you can find such designs as Play Sandstorm Cowards, Neon Alley Cats, Doontang Clan, among many, many others. But most importantly, thank you all for listening to this episode of the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast. Where come rain, shine, or anything in between, we're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. Stay safe, Alley Cats. <laughs>